I don't understand the concept of the free little libraries. Mm. I don't. I'm like, why would you give away your books? And then, I, <laughs> of course, I stand in front of them and like, but I have to take them all. <laughs> all my friends are like, you, you totally missed the grasp, the understanding <laughs> of what this is, didn't you? And I'm like, but it's books. They're in the, they're in the elements. They're not safe. Welcome back to the Epics Podcast. I started this podcast because I believe that the foundation of hate and discrimination in our world comes from a lack of understanding of those who are different from ourselves. We plan to combat that by hearing everyone's stories so that we may better understand them and be a part of creating real positive change. I've been so excited to share this interview for so long since I first spoke with our guest today. His name is J.P. Gerbahosian. J.P. has done many different amazing things in his life, including being a classically trained Shakespearean actor and the Chief Diversity Officer, and given the amazing person that JP is, I'm sure that we could have easily made whole podcasts about either one of those things. But the reason that I invited JP on today is because he is the founder of the Queer Armenian Library. We were able to talk about his childhood, growing up in multiple countries, and deciphering the multiple identities that he grew up with, searching for a home that he belonged in, which led to the founding of the Queer Armenian Library. He's such a delightful person, and we could have talked for hours and go on and on about JP, but I'd rather just get out of the way and let you hear JP's epic story. Well, hello, JP. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I've been really looking forward to to it as well. Before we get into it too far, would you be able to introduce yourself and describe who you are, what you look like, and a little bit of where you are for those of us who can't see you? Absolutely. I love that you do this, by the way. It's really it's really um, inclusive and makes things accessible in terms of your podcast. So my name is JP Derbogosian. I use he, they pronouns. I am wearing my podcast uniform, which is a maroon hoodie, a yellow goldenrod knit top with a mountain screen print. I have black hair. Um, it's winter, so my Armenian skin tone is very pale. <laughs> I've got rectangular glasses on and I am in my podcast recording closet which is awesome being a queer person and doing all my podcasting in the closet but behind me are some board games and some sweaters scarf and some hanging shirts i was telling jp before the interview that this isn't a closet this is your podcast studio yes yes i'm sorry yes i'm in my podcast studio (laughs) which also doubles as you know some storage and is there anything else you would want listeners to know about you before we get into your story I feel like we're going to get so much of it into the into the questions themselves. I guess I would just say that I uh, am a podcaster and an essayist, and I live in Minneapolis, St. Paul, with my two partners. We're in a poly relationship, and we split our time between um, actually the Twin Cities of Minnesota and Northwest Wisconsin, which is technically actually where I'm at right now, is Northwest Wisconsin. So in the middle of nowhere, which I love. So we have more deer right now than actual humans on our road, which is really fantastic. So I, I appreciate that. Absolutely. I also love that you described what you're wearing as your podcast uniform. <laughs> I recently was doing some recording um, at a conference and it was for for my client and they they were all going to like job interviews and stuff at, at the conference and things like that. And they were all wearing suits and stuff. And I was very determined to remain the podcaster there and always wearing my hoodie and you know i wore jordans to dress it up a little bit and you know stuff like oh yeah nice but yeah as, i was like i have to i have a reputation to uphold i have to make sure that i look the part 
Yeah, I we don't we don't get a podcast to wear suits. Like that's no. Exactly. No, not not going to happen. So, let's get into your story a little bit. Tell me about your childhood and where you grew up, how you grew up. So, I am Armenian American. So, my dad's side of the family is American and my mom's side is Armenian and I ultimately was born in Northwest Lower Michigan. If you look at the palm of your right hand, that would be the pinky. Uh, the tip of your pinky is where I was born, uh, where my dad's family is from originally. My, why was I born there? <laughs> That's I. Mm. So my my mom's family is Armenian, and they are genocide survivors, and they were ultimately refugees to France. And it's interesting to me because my mom and her sister really didn't like France that much. They didn't want to stay there. And so in their early 20s, they moved to the U.S. And for a variety of reasons, as it turns out, and met my dad and his brother, which is interesting. So they all got married and had kids. And my mom and her sister didn't like the um, French school system. And so they were bound and determined to have their kids go through the American school system. But that being said, like by the time I was eight months old, I was already on a plane and like <laughs> flying back to France to spend time with the family. And that was pretty much my childhood is bouncing back and forth between France and the U.S. My classmates in sixth grade were very jealous that I basically uh, the entire month of March was gone uh, to France to visit the family. They were like, how come he gets to miss a whole month of school? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know how this got approved, uh, but here we go. I'm <laughs> so, yeah. And when we weren't there for, you know, a month, two months, three months at a time, then we had family from over there coming. So it was, as you can imagine, a bilingual household. And actually kind of trilingual because French was the predominant language and then Armenian in there and then obviously right English. And so, yeah. Grew up a dual citizen, so constantly had that foot in both sides of the Atlantic and kind of not fitting into both, but also being comfortable navigating both, which is an interesting paradox to live through. So I was thinking about when we were talking about like, well, you know, being as kids, think of that through the kid's brain. The first thought is always going to be, why does that kid get to go and mm -hmm. be in France? Because it sounds like vacation, right? For a month. And I think that's interesting. Did it did it feel like a privilege to you to be able to go back and forth? Because it sounds like it was a little bit of kind of being torn between the two almost. It, you know, it's interesting. It wasn't until the because mainly the, the trips had been not during the school year. And so to do it during the school year was the first time that someone like the kids were flagging it as like, this is a normal experience for them, right? They, they, none of them were had family, you know, that you had to call them at a particular time of day because of the time change. And none of them, you know, mm. were getting packages from, you know, across the Atlantic and none of them were flying back and forth. You know, some of them had never been on a plane before. And I'm like, I was flying by eight months old. So it was actually kind of a interesting, like, oh, wow other kids don't do this and this isn't their mm. expectation and then this isn't their normal and that was hmm, that was interesting and also then to be over there in France and the kids over there were like why aren't you in school and you know to be like well we're American we don't have to go to school <laughs> it was also uh, interesting perspective uh, from that you know being over there so it was that was the first time that it really kind of hit home of the difference of that, right? That 
it wasn't just something that I talked about during like a show and tell or like a book report or something. It was like, no, this is this is real. Like mm -hmm. I'm not here and then I'm here and here's some French that I can speak for you. So, yeah, it was it was interesting. Yeah. And it sounds like it was almost a little bit more isolating then because it makes it so you almost didn't fully immerse in either culture. Right. Is that it's, I mean, that's what it sounds like mm -hmm. a little bit from the outside. I don't want to put words in your mouth. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're never, you're never quite into it. Right. I remember also like in Michigan, I would get all the time. I've had, I've had colleagues ask me about my accent and I'm like, my accent. And they're like, yeah, cause you're not from around here. Where's your accent from? Where are you originally from? And I'm like, I was born in the, probably the same hospital that you were born and probably graduated from the same high school that you graduated from. And, you know, but people look at the face and maybe it's the gay accent. I don't know. So I've never really fully felt like I fit in and blend in. Right. Because you see this like Armenian face and nose and hair. And I don't look like the other farm kids right from mm. from Northwest Lower Michigan. And then, though, you get over to to France and there as well. I mean, you put me in the Armenian community and I'd be like, oh, there he is. Right. But my Armenian is not super hot. Like I talk like a, you know, five year old uh, on my best day <laughs> and my French better. You know, I can go on that. But always, you know, it's like, oh, well, you know, he lives in the States. Which is kind of over there, I, like mm, he lives mm. in the States, like kind of sad for him. <laughs> and but then for the, you know, Armenians, it's also kind of torn because I've never as of yet haven't visited the Republic of Armenia. And so there's always this, well, who gets to be a real Armenian, right? Do you have to be born and live in the Republic or do you have to be born and live in Artsakh? You know, if you're part of the diaspora, like which of the part of the diaspora is more quote unquote Armenian? Like, is it Glendale, California? Is it Boston? Is it, you know, Moscow? So it's really, there's an ongoing, unfortunately, constant, like who gets to be Armenian, who is a real Armenian or not within the entire Armenian diaspora and the Republic. So that adds a whole other layer to the, you know, where do I belong? <laughs> Particularly when I get people still to this day, like just a few weeks ago, like I had three different people tag me on Twitter and be like, you're not a real Armenian. And I'm like, mm. seriously, like I need to see credentials at this point. Like someone needs to show me a license and credentials to tell me that they are qualified to tell people if they are or not Armenian. But yeah, when you're a kid and you're shuttling between those three communities and then you have that added layer of being queer mm. and there's like no queer people right around you uh there's not a, there's no cousins there's no you know the you know the and or uncle that you know is still single and has a roommate like none of that <laughs> uh then you're kind of also like mm, i probably won't get married and marriage and armenian culture i mean it is a Ooh, it is a thing, mm -hmm. right? So there are, it is a huge party. And, you know, to be there at those as a kid and think, mm, I'm not going to have this. And so I'm not going to be really part of this. And if I'm not going to be part of this, do I really belong here? So it's this whole other like layers of otherness as you're trying to figure out where, where is it that you fit in, which for a kid, you know, all kids want to know that they fit in somewhere. Yeah. It's one of the things that I think about a lot with particularly my eldest son right now, because he's five years old and he's got obviously this great personality about him that in preschool, he was like the most popular kid, right? He was a very small just, class and he was you know, very smart. And 
he's very sweet when he's you know not with us um but um but yeah and so everyone gravitated towards him and we were really nervous of going to kindergarten it's like oh it's gonna be a bigger class he's gonna be one of the younger ones eventually someone's going to not like him and that's fine but how's he gonna cope with that because yeah he doesn't know at this point that he's looking for that kind of belonging with everyone yeah because as a kid that's what you want you want to be friends with everyone you want to get along with everyone you want that place to belong and you have this distinct disadvantage wherever you go because you're always some form of an outsider in every group and that sounds really difficult yeah it was interesting because like the 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 family is such a huge unit on both sides of, of both sides of the Atlantic, right? So literally on my dad's side, the entire family is on a single plot of land. I mean, it's a huge like farm, you know what I mean? Like, but it's literally like house, 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 right in a row, right? And so you grow up in that environment and you're surrounded by your family. And I have three, uh, well, I have my brother and then I have my two cousins who are technically my double first cousins because they are my mom and her sister married my dad and his brother. So it was all normal, right? You're growing up in that. And that's that's normal. It's when you get out into the world, suddenly, then you're like, oh, you know, people constantly pointing you out as like, oh, well, you know, you're actually, you know, you're French or you're Armenian or you have this weird accent, um, which I still don't understand. And yeah, that's when it starts. You have that, like you're saying, you get into school and you start interacting with other folks and you realize, oh, you know, hmm. You you constantly get painted with that other brush, and that then becomes your your reality. And then you know the other paints right that are underneath that. You know the the queer identity, and you're like, oof, how much of that do I share? Because I I can't handle another I can't handle another you know paintbrush putting me into a corner or putting me you know outside in the cold. That was really melodramatic. No, it was beautiful. Yeah, that sounds really hard. I mean. I want to get into a little bit more of that um, here in a minute. But before we do, I want to talk a little bit more about being Armenian. I don't know a whole lot about Armenia, full disclosure. So I wanted to know a little bit from you. What, what does it mean to be Armenian to you? What were some of the things like growing up that, that were a part of Armenian culture that you really drew you to it, that kind of affirmed the I'm Armenian part of you? And, uh, <laughs> so, I mean, the first thing that you get because you have a huge family, so you think Armenians are everywhere, because you're just surrounded by family. And it's also a, there's a joke in, in Armenian culture of how dare you make a decision without consulting your second cousin first. Mm -hmm. So it's also this idea of decision-making is very tight-knit, right, as well. And everybody knows everything about you and well i mean they try to know everything about everything about you and so it's very insular but then you get outside of the family and the community and you realize whoa you know you're only ever the only armenian in the room right you can be at a you know the college that i work at right now uh 700 and odd employees only armenian right on staff and that's been the case everywhere i go where it's just you're by yourself. There's never any other Armenian there with you. And you carry the weight of history with you because of that. So you're almost constantly <laughs> telling people um, like about, you know, Armenia was the first country that adopted mm. Christianity, right, in 301 mm. AD. 
And, you know, Armenians invented wine because they found, you know, the first uh, flasks of wine and wine production in the cave that was in in uh, Armenia proper at the time, mm -hmm. right? When the all the maps and everything of where Armenia was located at the time. And we had our version of Stonehenge 2000 years right before uh, the actual Stonehenge. And so you just know these little tidbits of history and you're constantly, you know, telling folks about that and like Mannix and if folks are old enough or see on like TV land Mannix he was Armenian uh mm -hmm. even though he had an Americanized name so stuff like this you're constantly telling people uh that you're Armenian and giving Armenian history you're constantly looking for all of our names and an either IAN or YAN so like watching film credits or TV credits your eye is just trained and you're not even like really looking for it but suddenly you see an IAN or a Y and you're hey look it's an Armenian. <laughs> so it's you're 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 always kind of holding up the culture and being an ambassador, right, in that way. So I think that was the defining experience of being Armenian for me growing up and being part of the church is a huge, huge part of that uh, for a number of reasons. One, being the first nation state to adopt it as a religion, which makes it sound like it was very like, yay, we all voted and this is what we prefer. It was actually a very violent, how it happened was very violent. So you've got that ingrained into you. And then also, I mean, with the genocide, that was one of the reasons, right? Faith tradition was one of the reasons why they were targeted. And so you have that kind of extra layer on it where I always get a little annoyed, frankly, with like American Christians who always mm -hmm. feel like they're persecuted because I want to be like, Hmm. Okay, yeah, let's let's talk about what persecution is. Because uh, migrants are hidden in a ditch under dead bodies and you are upset because someone didn't say Merry Christmas to you and said Happy Holidays. So yeah, let, let's talk about that. Uh, let's unpack what that means for a second. So yeah, I think that is the sort of the immediate things of what I understood to be Armenian identity and Armenian culture growing up. Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot of a lot of history that really resonated with you growing up for me. And I'm sure it's really annoying to always be having to tell people what, what that means and everything, especially growing up. But I wonder if there's also a sense of pride, especially in some of the history. It seems like it develops this sense of pride of where you're, where you're from, right? Yes and no, actually. So it's really fascinating to see the... Some people will call it resilience. I kind of would call it stubbornness mm -hmm. <laughs> of Armenians to survive. Because when you look at, you know, all these maps going back thousands of years, you always kind of see, a, oh, there's Armenia. Or even when it was like taken over by some empire, it's always like demarcated within the map itself. And so you're constantly seeing it come up and survive and, you know, prosper in the areas. Even when it is subjugated, you kind of see them carving out a niche for themselves and making a life for themselves as best as right they're able to do. The other thing, though, is that as part of that, so where our Armenia is located and historically where it's been located is in Southwest Asia, which is kind of further east than the in the Middle East, right? So it's sort of north of Iran, um, part of, you know, Turkey and whatnot. And that was a hot mess for <clears throat> thousands of years. I, I mean, still today. But constant armies going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And because of that, with this history of just kind of constantly watching your 
civilization be raised over and then having to rebuild it over and over and over again. There's also this sense of lost opportunity or, you know, this is who we could have been if it wasn't for the, you know, Ottoman Empire. This is who we could have been if it wasn't for the Roman mm. Empire. This is who we could have been if it wasn't for the, you know, pick your empire um, of folks who were basically like, this is what we do. We just make armies and kill people. So I think there is that sense as of as well of Armenian culture, which is this kind of wistfulness mm. um, for what could have been and what was lost. And we're kind of like, for those of folks who like, you know, Irish poetry, like Yeats, if you like Yeats, like you're going to love Armenian poets. You know what I mean? Like mm. we're constantly, <laughs> our poets are constantly talking about the homeland and you know, what's still there and the resilience of that and the stubbornness of that, which is amazing. I don't mean that in like a shady kind of way, mm -hmm. uh, but also what could have been, you know, there's that that sense of loss there of what was taken from us, the ability to live and love and, and create our civilization. So, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting conundrum that folks have in relation to their Armenianness. There's an amazing memoir, um, Passage to Ararat, about this where uh, Michael Arlen talks about, it's a beautiful first sentence and I, I'm not going to even quote it because I'm going to butcher it, but basically it's to the effect of, I've found myself at a time in my life where I had to figure out what it meant to be Armenian and I had to decide that for myself. And I feel like that's also a feature of Armenian cultural identity is at some point, you just have to figure out what that means for you. And I haven't seen that in my colleagues or friends who are Swedish, right? Or who are American, who are French. In France, like I never, they know who they are. They never have to decide for themselves in France. Like, what does it mean to be French? Never go through that. But every single one of my Armenian family members and, and friends have had that moment of, how am I going to live in this world as an Armenian? I find it interesting, though, because I actually do ask that question of myself as an American, but in a very different way, I think is how do I interact with this world as an American? And what's my history? I've often, oftentimes growing up, I I felt very jealous of other cultures for the rich history that they have. Because I feel like the history of America is not one that I'm always proud of, right? For obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. And wishing that we had a more sense of, a, a better sense of tradition and something that we can like look to and be like, yeah, that's why I'm American. And a lot of people listening to this might I feel like obviously we have that. I, I didn't resonate with a lot of that necessarily as a kid mm -hmm. and maybe not even as adults. So it's a very interesting dynamic that, I, that I'm that i hearing when you're talking about the kind of the history of Armenia and kind of the wistfulness of all of that. No, it's, it's that is something I want to, I want to, I mean, you don't need my validation <laughs> on how you're feeling, I'll but that is, that is something that I, is a feature of that I have noticed in doing like diversity, equity, and inclusion work. And intercultural competency work with, because that's my like day job, you know, my regular gig is as a chief diversity officer. And a lot of Americans kind of have that similar experience, or at least in the work that they've done with me. So I won't speak for everybody and use that broad paintbrush, but folks that I've worked with around those skill sets have expressed that to me. And it's a, it is this kind of, how do we, when you know the history of the United States and how it came to be, Right. It is kind of all about invasion. Uh, and it's, 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 it's hard to be like, you know, for Armenians, it, it, you know, you can go back 2,000, 2,500 years and it's kind of just like where they ended up and who they were. And they did some shady stuff as well. You know what I mean? Like it was, 
you know, they're not immune from having, you know, armies and, and doing stuff right as well. But our history as Americans is so much more recent and shorter mm, compared right. to right the rest of the right the rest of the globe that it is. And also being a world superpower mm -hmm. and being that kind of dominant force, I think you're also trying to figure out how do I deal with that privilege? Right. And I've talked yeah. to a lot of folks, um, colleagues of mine who are who are uh, BIPOC Americans. They go abroad and suddenly they're like, wow, I have all of this privilege as an American mm. that I didn't realize that I had because I'd only been in the States. And so now how do I navigate that American privilege? How do I interact with the world as an American? So it is a really fascinating conversation. And I will gladly have that conversation with you, but maybe on a different episode. <laughs> but you no, know, yeah, exactly. That's, I think, part of what I was getting at is that it's so recent and, and all our history feels very recent. And if we were to somehow include the story of the United States and the story of Armenia, we would have been one of the conquerors, not the conquered, right? And so that's always something I always had to kind of wrestle with a little bit. But I want to talk a little bit more about, so you're growing up as a child with all these different identities, and we've only briefly touched on this a little bit, but I want to get into how this plays into your story, how you were always trying to decipher how much of yourself you wanted to share with everyone, particularly how much of your queer side did you want to share with people? Can you tell me a little bit about that? And then how did that kind of affect your relationship with your family? So on both sides of the family, queerness is a choice because both sides of the family are different branches of Christianity. And that carried different weight. On the Armenian side, it was existential and also criminal. I'll just put it that way, in the sense that if it's a choice, how dare you make the choice to mm. not marry an Armenian woman and not have Armenian kids because you are the grandson and great-grandson of genocide survivors and not all of your family survived. We lost a million and a half Armenian souls. We need to rebuild the Armenian nation. So if you are making this choice, you are harming the nation and you're no better than the genocide perpetrators. That's some wild shit to hear. Yeah. <laughs> right? When you hear that, when you hear folks saying that as a kid and you begin to internalize like, oh my gosh, not only am I like queer, but I'm like harming actively the nation and basically I'm not even Armenian anymore. That is such a terrible thing to do to a kid and to have that particular narrative and it causes damage i mean it causes some serious damage to you know there there are on the western side of things you know america canada you know western europe you can you know you're not, you're not part of this family anymore you get kicked out of your family right you there's really harmful things you know you're a groomer you're dangerous all of that which is equally harmful but you never are told that you are an existential threat mm. to your people, that you're not American anymore, that you're not Canadian anymore, that you're not French anymore, right? And so when you're trying to find your home, which is something that I think all of my work has been focused on is this interpretation of what is home? Where, where is this home that you can finally hold all of your identities? And they can be a source of pride. They can be a source of life for you and you're not constantly having to survive your own life and that's tricky 
<laughs> that is really tricky when you are queer because you end up, you're living in an Armenian diaspora. And then when you're queer, you add a whole other diaspora on top of that. Like I, it wasn't until my 30s that I finally met other queer Armenians. And that was because I went so hard into finding somebody, right? It was, I had to really search for that. And, and mainly it was through the internet and unfortunately Twitter, which Twitter's a morass of like <laughs> blah. Mm -hmm. And yet for me, when I look at Twitter, I'm like, oh, but I met so many like queer yeah. Armenians on Twitter and people that I would never have met in real life that are living in, you know, California and New York and, and, and the Republic. And I would never have, you know, so I have this kind of online home and family but on twitter of all places so that that is the the problem i think that i never quite figured out as a kid is where do i where do i fit in with this queerness bit because it was there would have been a way i feel if i had been straight to integrate better into navigating both sides of the atlantic because I could have married a woman and mm -hmm. had kids and that would have been celebrated on both sides right. of the Atlantic. And, you know, could have had that big, massive Armenian wedding and celebration that they literally spend like thousands and thousands of dollars on mm -hmm. uh, because it is a monumental part of the, the culture, right? This is a, this is a big deal. And growing up, I knew I wasn't going to have that. And I was waiting for God. I really committed to the faith tradition and was really learning like I, I it's funny later on I learned what conversion therapy was and I thought oh my god I created that when I was 11 <laughs> like I I had my whole protocol like I'm like I was I was genius at 11 years old like I had my whole thing like I had the whole program and when I, I'd look at the literature of other conversion therapy protocols and be like yep I did that I did that I did that the exception is that I did it to myself right. I created it for myself and I was wasn't in the like captured by other people and forced to do it, which is a whole other layer of trauma. Mm -hmm. But I was trying to, to, to make that happen for myself. And you can see videos of me as a kid and you can say, Hey, look at that. He's, he's laughing. He's getting along with his cousins. He's got friends. And I'm like, yeah, why, why wouldn't I? I had a direct relationship as I understood it to the creator of the universe. Mm -hmm. Every day I was working on that and I had faith. I had buckets of faith that he was going to change me and why wouldn't i believe that right as a kid because you're taught god you know what mm -hmm. i mean like this is this is an important the most important relationship you're going to have and it was my most important relationship like i was cut off like i did not because i was so scared of people emotionally invest in other people so i was constantly at you know holding myself back from really developing authentic truthful relationships with people and except for right with god and I had full faith that that was going to happen. And then by the time I was about 16 or 17, after about five years of this, five, six years of this, I was like, uh oh, this isn't going to happen. And that's where, you know, that's where things really got existential. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> you're like, I'm, I'm not going to fit in here ever, am I? Because if he's not going to do it, I mean, what, mm -hmm. what is? Yeah, and that sounds like so much to carry as a, as a kid, this weight of this re really existential crisis, right? The, the weight of betraying your, your ancestors, betraying your nation, 
that you've been growing up idolizing and you know loving and being taught all these great things about i i was curious though so growing up learning all of this so learning that from the perspective of your family that queerness is a choice and that that is choosing then to not further i'm trying to remember what the exact words you said repopulate the armenian nation Re, yeah. yeah repopulate the armenian nation was that something that you were learning before you came out or was it a response to you coming out or how was what was that dynamic oh you get all of this i I did not talk to family. I mean, I didn't come out to family until many decades later. Uh, so you're learning this through them talking about it, right? Uh, because when I was hitting adolescence and puberty was right when HIV and AIDS was the pandemic really mm. exploded in the United States. And so everybody was talking about queerness, right? So the, 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 the pastors and, and the priests were railing about it in our, in our churches. And by our, I mean like on the Armenian side and on the mm -hmm. American side. And family members constantly talking about like this is divine punishment. This is what they get. And so they were constantly talking about queerness in such hateful and existential ways that you learn all of this, right? Secondhand, because you're at the dinner table and dinner in Armenian culture is very different from American culture. Like it takes forever. It's hours long. You know what I mean? And so you're there and conversation is what happens there. And so you cover so many different topics and you get like four or five course meals and you just sit there and you you're digesting it while you're digesting your your food and you're just saturated in it, you're saturated in this history, you're saturated in this viewpoint. And you just internalize it and that's how you that's how you learn all of it and then you have to figure out what you're going to do with it from there i immediately am just drawn to the bravery that you have to then have is it bravery yeah I, no sorry go ahead I'm, I'm curious what sorry go ahead i interrupted you no no, no you're fine to, to me it's i'm stricken by that as an act of bravery to really stay who you are and not completely change yourself, which may or may not be possible necessarily, but to still eventually come to the point of having to come out, knowing that this is gonna be the response. And that, that to me strikes me as something that I would be very afraid of. Mm. Yeah, so, hmm. Coming out didn't happen until my mid-20s, and I don't know so much about Brave. Because at 16 or 17, like my whole faith tradition collapsed in on itself because I was like, I've been doing this, my version of conversion therapy for five, six years, and nothing's happening. And it was getting very tense. And when I realized it wasn't going to happen, then I kind of had a, okay. And I wouldn't have described it this way at the time, but when I look back at the choices that I was making and how I was approaching the world, I had this kind of resignation that death was going to happen. Mm. I mean, when I hit, when I hit senior years, when Matthew Shepard was kidnapped and beaten to death and 
So for me, I was like, okay, well, there's only one of two ways this is going to end. Someone is going to trick me or just outright try to kill me, or I'm going to somehow contract HIV and that's how I'm going to die. And so I then just went on a, I loved theater. I got so super into theater in in high school because theater was a way of getting out of my body, right? I could inhabit mm. somebody else's body. I could inhabit somebody else's reality. And I love that. And also it was on stage. So everybody could see me transform and tell this completely other story. And I love the stories, right, that I was telling. And I'm like, I love those stories way more than my story. So mm. yes, like I'm all on board with being an actor. And I moved out to Los Angeles and I took out every student loan that I could get. And at that time, they were just handing out credit cards to kids. They would just send them to you in the mail and you just called a phone number and you activated them. They didn't do any income checks or anything like that. And so I would max those things out. And I'm like, I'm never going to pay this back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I was just kind of, you know, that was the the tact that I was taking. You know, I was and I did some really fun, amazing things, you know, spending three years in Los Angeles going to, you know, a actor's academy, spending two summers in Oxford, studying with another actor's academy, Oxford, England. I had some amazing experiences. I think that's what I was looking for was I was going to have experiences hmm. and then it was going to all going to catch up with me and that would be the end of it. So there, I don't think there was bravery at that point. Life eventually became existential when I, oh, and I don't want to get too, <laughs> I don't want to get too depressing uh, right now, but I'll just say I had a couple of um, medical conditions sort of arise in my, uh, when I was 23 going on 24, which is when I thought everything was going to go down. Mm-hmm. Um, I started having seizures and they found out that my, I had osteoporosis. So during the seizures, I was like cracking and fracturing like my spine and, and other mm-hmm. bones in my body. And I essentially thought, okay, here it is. This is the end. And so I got very, uh, in a dark place and, um, there was a there was a suicide attempt and um, got through that and kind of existed, I would say, for a couple of years and meaning I really wasn't doing anything. I was just sort of living kind of day to day. And and then there was kind of this ideation again of of suicide. And then I was like, you know, just either do it or get help. And so I got help uh, and I had an amazing therapist and I worked for him for the better part of a year. And through that, was able to begin to understand how I could live in the world. And that's when I started very, very lightly coming out in a meaningful way uh, to to folks and be in a very targeted way and a very specific way, like, you know, this person and this person and this person, but not at work or anything like that, because... I was in Michigan at the time and you could get fired, right, for mm-hmm. for being queer and no excuse necessary. They could, you could just walk in and be like, you're fired and you'd have no recourse, legally speaking. Mm-hmm. So in my 20s is when I finally started doing that. But I didn't come out to my parents until I was 31. Um, and I made it harder... Because I'm in a polyamorous relationship and it's an intergenerational polyamorous relationship. And so this is beyond their understanding at this point. And so we are estranged, uh, both sides of the family uh, right now. I don't know how long that will last um, or what reconciliation right might look like. But 
I'm in a place now where I can handle that mm. as both in, in just as a human being and contained within myself and then also within my, you know, my relationship and my family of choice now that I can bear that in a way that I wouldn't have been able to do at 17. And I don't even know if I could have been able to do that at 25 either um, when I was trying to lay the foundations of what my life could look like. Well, thank you for sharing all of that. I do want to start talking about some of your work with the Queer Armenian Library, but I did want to ask you one other question first. And I don't mean this as a trick question in any sort of way, so I hope that comes across. Kind of evaluating it, at least from from my perspective, hearing how difficult it was to to be who you are, really, to know that you're queer and to know what that means in terms of your heritage and your family and how they'll view you, how you are supposed to be yourself based on that worldview. I, I guess what I'm wondering is why, why did you continue to choose to identify yourself as Armenian? Because you have all these other pieces of you that you could have pivoted to that wouldn't have been inaccurate, but you still chose to identify yourself as, as an Armenian. And I, again, I don't mean that as a true question, but this is something that kept popping into my mind. Oh, you've, you've, You've gotten to the heart of queer Armenian identity in that question. It's a conundrum. It's an existential conundrum, and it's a painful question that all queer Armenians have to ask. And some folks leave the community entirely. And some of them look like me, where you can put us in the Armenian community, and immediately you understand, like, that person is Armenian, right? Mm -hmm. But also like me, if I'm out, you know, in Bloomington, Minnesota, people look at me and they're kind of like, what are you? <laughs> you know, and I have gotten over my lifetime so many different, you know, I've gotten, are you, are you Irish? Are mm -hmm. you Italian? Are you Greek? Are you Palestinian? Are you Jewish? Are you Arabic? Are you Iranian? And are you Indian from India? That's a wide variety yeah. <laughs> of identities. But not are you Armenian? Folks that would be from, like, if they're from Southwest Asia or they're from the Middle East or the various diasporas, then they, they can start to zero in and be like, okay, wait, what's happening here? But people from outside really don't, you know, they wouldn't know what to look for. They just see difference. Mm -hmm. Oh, they see, the, they see the nose. Oh, they see the hair and all sorts of different things. And... So it would be easy for me to just say, mm, okay, and I'm going to not be in the community and sure I'll have, you know, this, this name, which I took on and focus on because, you know, I'm like, I, I want to be connected to my Armenian heritage, but you mm -hmm. could, I could undo that. You can just go before a judge and be sure. like, mm, here we go. And it's not unheard of for Armenians to Americanize their names or to, what is the French version of that? Frenchify? Francofy? Um, Frankenize? Um, I like Frankenize. Yeah. Uh, your, your name. But I, and I'm sure this is going to lead into a, in a, to an upcoming question here. I couldn't get away from it. And at the end of the day, I'm like, I, but I am Armenian-American mm. and I am Franco-Armenian. And 
it has shaped everything. And part of it is a wound that I need to address because it's just sitting like some type of a spike in my chest. And I need to find a way to pull that out so that I can heal. And the only way ultimately that I found to do that was to ask myself the question, what does it mean to be Armenian? What, how do I fit into this culture? What does all of this mean? Let's, let's take a look at it. Let's unpack it from a healing perspective. Yeah. And being a podcast yourself, you already know where, where I'm starting to steer a little bit of this. And we talked a little bit about this before about how the founding of the Queer Armenian Library really was, had its origins in searching for belonging. So tell me a little bit about how, how you ended up starting this library. Yeah. So it was, I was not meeting many queer Armenians in my life. And I finally kind of hit this breaking point where I said, I'm, I need to find anything and everything that a queer Armenian has written. Like I've read all of the hate, got that, but there has got to be a book. There has got to be an op-ed. There has to be something that someone has written, a poem, an essay, something. And so I was lucky to be doing this in the two, you know, uh, what year was it? 2013, 2013, 2014. And the internet was there and I was able to begin to do this huge dive into the internet. And I searched, obviously, like, you know, you start with Google, but then mm -hmm. I started identifying Armenian bookstores and used their search engines to look for books. I was looking through websites like Thrift Books, A Books, uh, Book Depository. There's another, I mean, there's a whole bunch of, I can't remember all of the different uh, search engines that I was putting in there. And I was doing all sorts of, you know, LGBT Armenian books, uh, gay Armenian books, lesbian Armenian books, bisexual Armenian books, transgender Armenian books, trans novels, gay Armenian novels. Like I was doing every version of that search and started to turn up some books. And I was like, oh, wow. And then I kept finding other books and I kept finding other books. Now, we're not talking about like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books, but I was starting to through this constant search process, which was an involved search process every time I would do it, something new would turn up. Mm -hmm. It was like archaeology, but without any, <laughs> without any idea. You know, it's like, it's like you look out into the plains of Montana and you're like, there might be dinosaur bones in here. And you just start digging mm -hmm. and you have your tools and you just keep digging and digging and digging. And then all of a sudden, ooh, look, here's a, you know, a tooth from a tyrannosaur. Hey, here's a skeleton of a stegosaurus, you know. You're just looking and you have no idea if you're even going to find something or if where you're looking is going to turn up anything. And then all of a sudden, there it is, you know. And something that, you know, three months ago wasn't part of the search will suddenly, for whatever reason, show up again in the search in the same place that you were looking at. And so I started buying up all these books. And reading them, obviously, and seeing that, wow, I'm not the only one. A, just I'm not, literally, I'm not the only one. But B, the lived experiences and the questions that I was asking and this existential crisis, other folks were wrestling with that too. And here's how they were dealing with it. And so suddenly, you know, there were these opportunities to begin 
to reconcile queerness and Armenianness and start to say, okay, how mm. how can these things fit together? Where where is this home, right? That that queer Armenians are are living in. What is that space? What is that place? And it there actually is a place. And about three or four years in, I said to myself, I think I have the most comprehensive library right now. And should I be keeping that to myself? Mm. I mean, it's only a shelf. You know, it's not like a whole bookcase, but it's a shelf. And nobody else should have to do this. Right. Nobody else should have to spend years trying to track this stuff down. And I said, I got to create a website for this. Mm. Now, other folks might have said, let's just put a list of the books, put it on a website and be done. And me being me, I couldn't do that. I'm like, it's got to look pretty. It's got to be stylish. There's got to be more that you, I want, like a bio of the author. I want like pull quotes, you know, and a summary of the book. And I want to be able, you know, if I, if I can find like photos or an interview from the author, then I'll put mm. that embed it into each page. And so that created a whole other research process, <laughs> trying to find additional information and creating a page for every single title in the library. And even through that, I began to find art and TV shows and film. And I was like, wow, there's just I keep finding all of these, you know, nuggets as I'm creating the library itself. So that took about a year to put the, the the actual website together. And I went through like three different versions of the design process because I'm me and it's got to look, it's got to look slick. And in November of 2020 is when I launched it and opened it into the world. And it was, it was amazing. Like I loved, I knew there was such an, an, a niche topic that I wasn't going to get thousands and thousands and thousands of like clicks and views. Mm -hmm. What I was most interested in was the map that WordPress gave mm -hmm. me to show me where people were coming, accessing the site from. And as the weeks and the months went by, that global map, they used the color pink, which I just love. Uh, so the, you know, light shade pinks means there's a few people. And then the darker the shade of pink, the more people right from that country. Mm -hmm. And as the weeks and months went by, more and more and more of the globe was turning pink. Wow. And that to me was amazing because it told me, wow, other folks are now going on here and they're finding stuff in a much easier and simpler way. And that meant a lot to me. And mm -hmm. I would hear, you know, some folks would reach out and I had a couple of folks do, you know, a couple of stories. Uh, there was a, you know, like the local public radio station. Uh, here in Minneapolis did a story and the Armenian Weekly newspaper did a story right as well. And also I had set up the website in a way so that you couldn't comment and you couldn't interact with mm -hmm. the pages because I didn't want a queer Armenian person or anyone to come in there and see the vitriol. I'm like, this is yeah. not a space for them. I'm not going to platform that. So I'm literally going to not make it possible to interact with the site. You just go to the site and you enjoy the site. Mm -hmm. And for the most part, I got very little hate. I got a few people that found me right on Twitter and did the whole, you know, thing. And, you know, Gomik, which is, you know, the Armenian version for, you know, faggot. And But beyond that, a few, like, really pointed people that went out of their way to send. I also had, like, a you could send messages to me through the a contact form on the site. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, there were a few mm, emails like that. But I was preparing myself for a deluge, right? I was ready for right. all of it. And for the most part, it wasn't. For the most part, it was a lot of folks that wanted to express their uh, gratitude. And also in the contact form, I said, if you have something, because this search process is arduous and we're in a diaspora within a diaspora. So if you know of something, let me know. And so folks would, you know, at, you know, send me a message and say, hey, do you know about this op-ed? Do you know about this book? And so the library continues mm. to grow in that way and has hopefully, and now we're adding a managing editor to the site who can help to continue to grow it, Natalie Cruz. And she's, a, she's an art history, so she's actually identifying a lot of queer Armenian artists wow. who are doing amazing work. And she's building out that side of the library, which I wouldn't have ever even known or known how to find right, right. those those uh, folks. And so I really like that it's now starting to take on a community feeling to it, right? That it's it's becoming bigger than me and bigger than than Natalie. And it's kind of serving this larger function for the, the community. My favorite part listening to you tell the story of the library is when you're doing your when you're re- doing the beginning research stages of just finding as many books as you can. And it sounds like the way you're, the way you're saying it, at least every time you find a new book, you're almost a little surprised that there's another one out there. Yeah, that's true. That's true. From my perspective, at least just from the context of hearing your story through this interview, you know, you you spend most of your life. It sounds like looking for identity, wrestling with identity, wrestling, where are you from? Who are you? And, feeling very isolated. We talked about this in your childhood, even just like, I'm always the outsider in this area, this area, this area. And especially when we get into the, the concept of your queerness as well, it's like, there's, there's probably no one like me. It sounds like that was a thought that you might've had. And then I can only imagine the weight that might be lifted every time you find a new book that really makes you a part of this community, really. And tells you that you're not the only one like that. It seems like there might be a weight lifted every time you find a new title. There is. There is. And there are pockets of community, right? If you're in, you know, there was the, there's a couple LA queer Armenian organizations, nonprofits, and there used to be one in New York, but now that I think there's just a small community. And I think there was one in Paris for a while. And there's a, there's a few in Armenia itself, in, in the capital, Yerevan. So you can have these localized, but I can't tell you the number of writers that I ultimately connected with who said to them, who said to me, rather, I thought I was by myself as a writer. Mm. Like, I was just writing. And something the library has done that I was not anticipating was creating a community of writers that understood themselves now as a part of a community. I don't mm. want to take too much credit for that, but there were a lot of, like, we've gotten a new novel uh, that just came out last November from a trans-Armenian author with an actual trans-Armenian protagonist, mm. heroine. And she's like, I wrote that, A, because I had this novel idea in the back of my head, but she's like, I'm filling a gap now because there wasn't that novel. So I'm yeah. wanting to add to this literature because nobody actually understood and I didn't either, that there was this subgenre, there was this community now of queer Armenian literature. So when you look at queer literature overall, 
we can now say there is this community. And when you look at Armenian literature overall, we can say, yeah, here's a subgenre of this overall literature. And nobody knew that. Nobody knew that there could be a shelf of books. Some people knew there was a handful of them here and there. They had you know, edited anthologies or they had written something and then knew a couple of other writers. But nobody knew, and I didn't know, the real scope of what was actually available for us. And so in that regard, it's been very gratifying. And as an aspiring you know, writer and as an essayist, there's something about that as well when you're, mm-hmm. when you're trying to take the idea and put it into a story and to know now that you're part of a community of storytellers, right, as well, who are, and it's a different way with it when you're trying to A, live your life, but then also when you're trying to tell the story and put it into a written format is another way. It's a, it's a different type of doing that. And it's, a, it's nice to have that community as well, because now I know somebody and other folks in the community know folks where they can say, can you read this? Can you read this? And just and I don't have to explain to you what it means right. to be queer. And I don't have to explain to you what it means to be Armenian. You can just read it and give me honest feedback as a writer. And that is so rare. It is. It was unheard of for us prior to the library. And I, I'm making it sound like it's this huge, bigger thing, maybe. Uh, and making oh, okay. it too grandiose and maybe taking too much credit. But it's been really gratifying to me to see those folks see the library as this community space and as a space to mm-hmm. connect to other writers and also just to other people. Well, and in your attempt to be humble, I'm going to take a second to praise you for a second because <laughs> my favorite thing about you and your story so is this exact thing. And you mentioned this as you could have just compiled all of this and been like, oh, I'm not alone. That's good to feel. And then stood up, walk away. But you had to spend a year redoing your website over and over again, which I did as well. I think I'm on my fifth, fourth or fifth version of my website. <laughs> but you you had to do that. You had to create it in this way. And, and not just in a flippant way. You had, it was with intention and with, with care and with passion to build this library that maybe is not, you know, as huge as it might sound, but to, to take the care and the time to put the love and passion into that so that at least someone has the same feeling you did of, oh, I'm not the only one. Because you said that throughout the whole time. You didn't expect it to go viral. You don't expect it to get thousands of clicks. And yet you still spent the time and the effort to make it a worthwhile and loving experience for the few people who you expected might see it, not even knowing what it was going to grow into. And I think that's a really beautiful story. And I really, I really love that about you and your story. So thank you so much for sharing that and for, for doing that for everyone. That's very kind. Thank you. But speaking to, to those of us who, who have very different stories from you, who don't have any of the identities that clash with the people around us that you had many of, that we did fit in in our culture. And maybe we were one of those kids who pointed at the kid who was always gone or who wasn't in school or who was a bit different. And we don't know what it's like to grow up with kind of this secret identity about ourselves that we're fearful of letting out to the world. Speaking to those of us with these different stories, hearing your story now, what would you hope that we better understand? I've been struggling with this question, actually, and I've been struggling with with it in a professional sense as well. Why? I don't want to tell people 
what to think. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to say you have to love all queer people in your life. I want you to. And I want you to know that there are, maybe are queer people in your life that are struggling. And I want you to know that there may be queer people in your life that are really good at telling jokes and being snarky and being on, if you will, and then going home and like, ugh, I'm exhausted because I have to constantly put on this show. But at the same time, I don't want to justify the value of having queer people and Armenian people and queer Armenian people in your community and in your life. We have inherent value. We all Mm -hmm. have inherent value. My entire day job is literally about how do we take people from a variety of, of marginalized communities and dominant communities and how do we create a college? How do we create an, an, an environment where people can get the education they need and have the professional aspirations that they have? And I did this in health and human services, right, as well. How can patients who are queer and queer Armenian and, 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 and any marginalized community come in and get the health care, right, that they need? And I can't force somebody to have empathy as much as I would want them to. But there is something about our stories that do have value if you're willing to listen. There are things about our stories that can enrich the community. And I don't want to say that in a way to justify our existence. Like, look, we have value and we need to be a part of that. Like, no. It's inherent. Okay. You see that I'm struggling with this. Um, but I also want to say to the straight and cisgender like producers and directors mm-hmm. and publishers, you don't need to tell our stories. What we need you to do is to empower us to tell our stories. You know, if you're a screenwriter, you don't need to write the queer experience. Mm-hmm. What you need to do is to partner up with a queer screenwriter and give them opportunity mm-hmm. and either write the story together or find a way of helping them get their screenplay out into the world. If you're a director, you don't need to direct the film about queer experiences. There are thousands of straight stories for you to tell. You need to help find a queer director and queer actors and get them opportunities because they're not getting those opportunities. If you're a publisher, same thing. You know, mm-hmm. you don't need another straight author writing about the queer experience. You need a platform queer people and have us tell our stories because we need that. We need that experience to be able to craft that because we have perspectives that you won't have on this because we live it on a day-to-day basis. And this goes beyond representation. Again, it's about saying that there is value. We're going to recognize the inherent value. We're going to recognize your humanity. And I don't need to justify that to you anymore. It just is. And I'm not going to apologize for it anymore. And I'm not going to bend over backwards to show you that I have inherent worth. I do have inherent worth. And I hope that you will come to the table and engage with me in that way. But I'm not going to stop. There's no stopping, as a guest on my podcast said a few episodes ago. There will be no stopping. This is who we are, 
and we're going to continue to live and we're going to continue to love and you can try to ban our books and you can try to ban us from participating in athletics and you can try to ban us getting health care and you can try to ban even people saying the word gay but we're here and we're not going anywhere and we're going to continue to tell our stories and I hope that we can do that together and I hope that there are allies who see ally as a verb and not as a sticker that you put on your door and that to be that ally you're finding ways of helping queer people tell their stories and being part of the narrative and being part of the the table that's your role as an ally but we're going to fight for that we're going to be at that table regardless of whether you want us to be there or not we're we're going to be there and we want to do this work with you. We want to do this work with you, right? We want to be creating home together. We want to be creating cities and neighborhoods together. And there's value in that. But we're not going to justify ourselves. Thank you so much for, for sharing all of that. And I want to give you one last opportunity to to speak to those of you who re really are resonating with your story, who maybe as queer Armenians are hearing this for the first time and discovering that there are others like them, or even if there are just others who are feeling really isolated, whether in their queerness or in their communities based on whatever factors that are coming in and feeling that there is no one like me and it's really hard for them to feel at home and in community. What would you want to say to them? I see you. Your struggle is real. I don't want to give you a platitude that it will get better. Because I want to acknowledge the hurt and I want to acknowledge the struggle and I want to acknowledge the fight that you're going through because it's real and it causes harm. And the work that I do, I'm trying to put out into the world for folks to acknowledge that hurt, but also to find ways of healing, to find ways of having joy. I was just doing an episode of the podcast where an author said humor and laughter is control, but it's also the next stage of acceptance hmm. where we can get to those stories. And, and so queer joy and queer laughter is huge. It's not just about levity. It is about acceptance. And that's blowing my mind. I'm still like, what is happening? Like a whole other like universe is just like big banged into my into my head. But I hope that you're able to find those spaces, however you're finding those spaces. And if it's limited, it's limited. And if you're not ready to come out yet, you're not ready to come out yet. Don't feel stigma about that. You'll come out when you're ready to come out to the people that you need to come out to. And I hope that you're able to find those areas of, of queer joy. And if you're not right now, that's cool. Let's find a way to get there. And for the allies, again, you have a queer family member. You have a queer friend. If they come out to you, don't be like, Oh, I knew it. And don't say stuff like, why didn't you tell me before? Mm. Say, I'm sorry that I didn't present myself in a way you could trust me with this earlier. And I want to be here for you now. Mm. And how can I support you now? 
And I'm going to intervene when you want me to intervene to support you and to protect you. And if you don't need me to do that and you just need me to have your back, then I'm here to have your back. And I'm going to learn. I'm going to learn. I'm going to read books or I'm going to watch movies and I'm not going to say, well, that's a queer thing or that's an Armenian thing. I'm not going to get anything out of that. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. Um, you know, I've, I've watched so many movies where there's not a single queer person in it or not a queer Armenian person. I've read so many books that are amazing books that I've learned so much from of who I am as a person and who I want to be as a person or just for entertainment purposes. Like, wow, I just really enjoyed that. That was a really fun book or movie or TV show. You'll get something out of that. You'll get something out of that. Again, not justifying our art, not justifying our lives. It, it has inherent worth, but there are things that you're missing out on. And, and pride, oh, I want to talk about pride. Pride is not stickers. Mm -hmm. Pride is not fast food or that fair food. Pride was a riot. Pride started as a riot in the streets with bricks in windows. And there was a reason for that. And yes, it's great now that we can have stickers and have bad food and listen to great music. But there's a fight happening right now. And which side are you going to be on? Well, JP, thank you again for spending the time with me this morning and for being so open and vulnerable with your story. I really appreciate you and all of the great work that you're doing. Again, I'm just, I love your story and I'm, I'm so excited to be a part of uh, sharing it with everyone. So thank you for letting me into that. Thank you for having me. You're, it's such a great podcast and the interviews that you're having. Like, I, I really want to support it and find ways of, of uplifting it because it's really amazing work that you're doing. So I hope that you keep doing it. Keep plugging along because uh, we, need, we need more podcasts like this out in the world. So thank you for that. Thank you. That means a lot. For anyone who wants to continue to follow JP and his story and his library, I will have links to everything in the description for wherever you are listening and make that really easy for you to follow along and support JP and all the work he's doing. Thank you again, JP, for joining me. I hope you have a great rest of your day. We'll talk to you very soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my conversation with JP. If you believe in what Epix is doing and love the content that we're creating, I'd be so grateful if you supported us on Patreon. That way we can spend more and more time bringing you Epic guests to share their stories with us. The absolute hardest thing about producing this podcast is having to limit my conversations that I have with these amazing guests. Because JP and I really could have gone on for so much longer talking about probably anything or everything. Among the topics that we were unable to cover today is JP's podcast. JP is the host of This Queer Book, where he has conversations with guests from across the LGBTQ rainbow about the queer books that have saved their lives. I was really moved by JP and his story, being able to hold what appeared to be contradictory identities so gracefully and so naturally wanting to share that story and belonging with others so that they're not alone either. It's so, so inspirational and it's a story that we can all learn from regardless of who we are. I would love to hear from all of you about what resonated with JP's story. So be sure to find us on social media and reach out anywhere at Epic's Pod to tell us what's sticking with you from this conversation. 
I want to remind everyone that I am expanding the Epics podcast to be Epics Productions as well. I've fallen in love with podcasting as a medium for storytelling. And I want to be a part of sharing as many stories as I can. If you, anyone you know, or any organization that you love and support has a story to share that would really benefit from creating a podcast, refer them to me, send them to me, send them my number, send them my website. I'd really appreciate you referring them to me. It means a lot. And I want to be a part of sharing as many stories as I can and creating a sustainable business that I can support my family with. Make sure you're subscribed to this queer book as well as the Epics podcast so you don't miss the next Epic story. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.